Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all again. Um, who's here for the first time uh, this Sunday? Yeah, great to see you. Uh, last time I spoke was only two weeks ago. It was 31 degrees. A uh, little bit different today. The great British summer, all ready to go on holiday. Um, so we're taking a break from uh, Exodus. We've um, been going through uh, the, the whole book uh, and we've got to about chapter 12. We, we've left the Israelites sort of just about to leave and they're just going to have to stay there until about the middle of September now before they're actually allowed to leave Egypt. Um, but we've done all the Passover um, stuff uh, last week. So we're going to take a break from death and blood and plagues and uh, go to the New Testament uh, and spend a few weeks um, in Luke's Gospel looking at some of the parables of Jesus. Um, so a little bit of a, a gear change. Uh, and we're going to start in Luke chapter 8. So if you'd like to uh, find that in your Bible or phone, whatever you prefer. Uh, the parable of the sower, as it's called. Uh, although the parable of the seed or even the four soils would probably be uh, a better uh, summary. So what is a parable? Um, a parable is basically an allegorical story, a story where uh, the elements of the story stand or represent something else. And uh, uh, it teaches and challenges the hearers. And although on the surface they... Um, sort of a, just everyday stories, simple stories, uh, full of familiar imagery, uh, the parables do have a sting in the tail. Uh, and the first one that we encounter in three of the four Gospels, John doesn't include any parables, um, but Matthew, Mark and Luke, the first one is the parable of the sower, or the seed, or the four soils. Um, and we're looking at Luke uh, chapter 8. Uh, so let me just read. I'm sure it's very familiar territory uh, for many of you, uh, but let's, let's read it anyway. Luke 8 and verse 1. After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, 
though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So just very briefly, the context here is that uh, Jesus is still ministering in Galilee, in the uh, northern part of Israel. It's the fairly early days in his ministry. He's attracting huge crowds, rich and poor, adults and children, uh, healthy and sick, religious and irreligious, spiritually hungry as well as just curious or maybe even bored. All kinds of people are being drawn to Jesus. And, and he captured their imagination. And, and I think uh, what intrigued them most was that he was teaching about the kingdom of God. It says there in verse 1, he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. It's that word kingdom that, that was really intriguing and fascinating for people. Because that's what they were waiting for. Waiting for God to come to Israel, God's to kingdom to come on earth, for God to intervene on Israel's behalf, to defeat Israel's enemies, to establish his kingdom on earth through the long-awaited Messiah. That was Israel's hope. Could Jesus be the one? Was Jesus the Messiah? Expectation was rising. Conviction was growing. And there's no doubt Jesus could have set in train a, a series of events um, that the authorities in Jerusalem and even in Rome could not have stopped. A few miracles here, a firebrand speech, and the whole region would have erupted in messianic fervor. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he tells a story. He tells a parable about a farmer and a seed and four different soils. And that's it. Verses 5 to 8. That's all he says. There's no explanation. That's all the crowd here. This story about the, the farmer sowing his seed. And even the disciples don't understand why he's done this. They say in verse 9, you know, they asked him what this parable meant. And then Jesus explains it in verse 10. He says to them, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others, the crowds, I speak in parables. <clears throat> so what's the purpose then of the parables? Here's the popular view. The popular view is Jesus was a great storyteller and communicator. And so he told parables to help simple country folk understand deep spiritual truth. Because they're not into theology and long words. They just want stories. And Jesus is a great communicator. That's the kind of the popular view. But actually, that's not what Jesus says. <laughs> On the contrary, 
he says, I tell parables to conceal the meaning. That's what he says in verse 10. Though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. So the disciples get the plain teaching and the explanation, but the crowds get the parables. Why would that be? Well, I think it's safe to say Jesus didn't take the crowds at face value. He's more interested in their motivation, their hearts, than just simply the number of people who show up. And so I, I think the parables act as a kind of filter. The vast majority of people who, who come uh, are spiritually blind and deaf. But amongst that vast crowd, Jesus wants to draw out the spiritually hungry. He's looking for those with ears to hear. Because some of them just want a political leader. They want someone who's going to march on Rome and challenge authority. Some just want a miracle worker or a healer. But what they get is a storyteller. But this was Jesus' way of drawing people closer to himself. Because I don't think we can really make sense of Jesus from a position of detached curiosity from standing on the sidelines or sitting on the fence. No, we get understanding and illumination to the extent that we draw close to Jesus, to the extent that we are committed to him. And I think that's why the secrets are shared with the disciples and not with the crowds. Jesus was more invested in investing his time in a small group of people, um, the 12 disciples, and then also those women who are mentioned there in verses 2 and 3. Rather than attracting a huge popular following, Jesus wants to invest in a small group of people. And in fact, as you read the Gospels, Jesus is always trying to get away from crowds. Yes, he was hugely popular and he couldn't stop them uh, following him and uh, being drawn to him but often he's trying to escape he wants to be alone he wants to be with the disciples so that he can invest in their lives so the parables then I think are a kind of filter um, working out who has ears to hear who is genuinely spiritually hungry for more and this parable then explains that filtering process it explains the different reactions to Jesus. And I think there are three vital lessons from this parable. And the first one is this. The parable explains how the kingdom of God grows. The parable explains how the kingdom of God grows. Because here's the question, see. How does the kingdom come? How is the world transformed? What means will Jesus use to um, bring in the kingdom Will he march on Rome to seize political power? Will he call down supernatural fire from heaven? That was an issue in Jesus' day, and it's still debated today. How does the kingdom grow? Is it through social and political action? Is it through signs and wonders? Well, the answer lies in the metaphor of the seed. The seed is the word of God. This is the vital thing. This is how the kingdom grows. So what do we mean by the word of God? 
Well, obviously Jesus himself is the word of God. He's the word made flesh. And then the, the gospel is the message about Jesus, the good news that we tell people about Jesus. But of course, the gospel is just a summary of the whole Bible. And the whole Bible points us to Jesus. So it's all of these things. When we say the word of God, we could be referring to the whole Bible, the gospel, or Jesus. They're interconnected, aren't they? We use the Bible to teach the gospel so that people can encounter Jesus. But the word is the key ingredient. This is the key to germinating the kingdom of God. There's probably no one here this morning who's going to disagree with that. But it's worth being aware of challenges to the centrality of the word. There are other things that we can put at the center. Uh, it's probably not so much an issue today, but throughout church history, uh, a sacramental ministry has been a challenge to the centrality of the word. Um, certainly at the time of the Reformation, um, the reformers wanted to bring the word of God back into the center of church life rather than communion, the Eucharist, the bread and wine. Of course, we do that. It's important. We're doing it tonight on Zoom at 7 o'clock. But it's not the center. It's not the main thing that we offer to the world. What we offer is the word, the gospel. So that's one challenge to the centrality of the word. Another one is what used to be called the social gospel. Perhaps today might be termed social justice, social justice movement. Now, don't mishear me. Of course, we are to demonstrate our love in action. Um, but God's kingdom is not established simply through food banks and laws of parliament. The kingdom grows as the word is preached, as, it, as the gospel takes root in people's lives. Yes, words without deeds is hypocrisy. But deeds without words is just philanthropy. We need both together. Or one is perhaps a means to the other. And then another challenge is the worship movement. Um, church music has changed dramatically in the last 30 years, mainly for the better, I would say. But let's not go there. Let's, <laughs> let's not restart the worship wars. They're over. But there is a theology behind it, um, which sometimes views the worship leader as the new priest, it's the worship leader is leading us into the presence of God. Who needs the Bible when God's doing much more exciting things? Um, do we come to worship or to hear the word of God? Again, obviously it's both. But the word must be the central thing. So there are challenges uh, to the centrality of, of the word. The seed is the word of God. That's what needs to be sown. Well, I guess there's a fourth challenge or a fourth danger, and that's the seed that stays in the packet. Seed that doesn't get sown isn't much use, is it? The gospel is no good to anyone unless we let it out. The seed must be sown. We can talk a good game, but not actually do any evangelism. So I think we need clarity about this. We, we need convictions about this that it's the word that saves it's the word that sanctifies as the spirit works upon the word 
It's the key to evangelism. It's the key to discipleship. The Bible, which is the word of God, needs to be at the center of all our ministry. And it needs to drive everything else. So that everything else we do is, is word driven. So that's the first lesson. It reminds us that this, the, the seed is the word of God not something else. Secondly, it, it, the second main lesson is it reminds us of the inevitability of failure and disappointment. Hmm, sounds like a bit of a downer. The one seed falls in four different kinds of soil. Some of it falls on the path. Uh, there in verse 5 and then Jesus explains it in verse 12. Jesus knew that uh, many who had gathered to hear him that day did not have ears to hear. Some are perhaps hardened by intellectual pride. He doesn't expect me to believe that, does he? Others perhaps by moral obstinacy. Oh, I'm not going to stop doing that. Or self-righteousness. Me, a sinner, how dare he? Or indifference. Each to their own but it's not for me. Whatever the reason for people's rejection, notice the one who is at work behind the scenes, snatching the seed away. The devil himself is at work preventing people from hearing and uh, preventing that seed from taking root. And that's one of the devil's primary tactics, isn't it? To stop people hearing the gospel and being exposed to the word of God. And maybe he's, the, the devil is at work this morning in this very building. Who knows? From this parable, I would believe that would be the case. Secondly, some seed falls on rocky ground. Verse 6, explained in verse 13. Let's call it the superficial response. There, there's an initial enthusiasm but it doesn't last. They, they respond with genuine emotion, but then reality hits. Life doesn't change overnight. Problems don't evaporate. In fact, new problems emerge. New challenges present themselves. Life gets harder, and maybe they feel cheated. This wasn't in the contract. Where's this life of peace and prosperity you promised? Maybe it's just not working for me, this faith thing. And so they throw in the towel. We've all seen it happen. We've seen the five-minute wonders in church. They appear to make a right response. They're into everything. They're enthusiastic. Where are they now? Mere professions of faith do not guarantee saving faith. The superficial response. And then thirdly, some seed fell among thorns. In verse 7, and that's explained in verse 14. This is the distracted disciple. There is a response. They even retain a sense of Christian identity. But they don't mature. They become distracted. We might call them worldly Christians. A foot in both camps. 
trying to have their cake and eat it. And again, I'm sure we've seen this. And I'm sure we've experienced some of the uh, temptations and challenges ourselves at different stages of life. When we're young, our educational goals and sporting achievement, sexual attraction, in middle age, financial pressure, family responsibilities, career advancement, and in old age, preoccupation with our health or the grandchildren. Whatever stage of life we're at, we're surrounded by weeds that threaten to choke the life out of us. That's what Jesus says, life's worries, riches, and pleasures. They're weeds, says Jesus. And unless we do some regular weeding, we're in danger of losing our spiritual vitality. Now, if you're looking at this from a marketing perspective, you, a good salesman might say, well, surely we should just adapt the seed. Sow different seed um, for the right kind of soil. Or, alternatively, let's only sow seed in fertile soil. Let's just go for where we know it's going to get a good response. And you're probably aware, most church growth strategy is a variation <laughs> On, on those uh, ideas. And to me, this parable would seem to undermine um, a lot of church growth theory. Because we're not to change the seed. It is what it is. We mustn't change it. It's the gospel, the unchanging gospel. We don't change the seed. Nor should we try and target specific audiences. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, sow indiscriminately. Sow the seed wherever you go. And let the seed do its work. But be prepared for disappointment. Because telling the gospel is hard work. Many will hear and never, never return. Others will make a, a, a right response. But then drift away. Still others will keep coming like passengers on a train, but never displaying anything other than nominal commitment. So we need to be realistic. We need to be prepared for disappointment. But there is one comfort, and that's the third thing, the certainty of kingdom growth uh, in verse 8. Now, there's often a, a debate or a question, which of these responses represents saving faith? Which ones are saved? Well, commentators disagree on that. Some people believe in once saved, always saved. That if you've made a response and meant it, then you're, you're saved regardless of what happens afterwards. Um, sort of a little bit like fire insurance. You pay once and you've covered for life. But I'm not convinced by, by that view. Um, Jesus said that 
verbal profession alone is not sufficient. Um, he also talks in John 15 about branches being cut off. There are warnings in Hebrews and Revelation. Um, so on that particular question, I'm not going to be dogmatic. Uh, it's not for me to say. But one thing is clear, is there is only one fruitful response. Forget about the salvation question, I'll leave that to God. But in terms of fruitfulness and fruit bearing, only one seed um, produces a positive outcome. Enduring spiritual productivity. So in terms of fruit bear bearing, the first three soils fail the test. None of them produce fruit. So what then is, is the fruit? And uh, this is the final thing I'll say. What is the fruit that Jesus is talking about? What is the evidence of genuine spiritual life? Um, three things. Firstly, endurance. Um, faithful obedience over a lifetime. This is the mark of the true believer is that you keep going. Yes, you get knocked down. But you get up again. We're hard-pressed, as Paul says, you know, but we keep going. We're not destroyed. We may feel pretty beaten at times, but we don't throw in the towel. The true believer endures, perseveres, there is such a thing as an abortive conversion experience. I mean, Judas is the obvious example, isn't he? Um, and I think last time I spoke, I, I did cross-reference with Hebrews 3 when we were in relation to Pharaoh's hard heart. Um, but I think it's relevant again. Um, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction to the very end. So that's the first uh, mark there is endurance. Um, it says they hear the word, they retain it, and they persevere. Endurance, But there's two other things uh, that Jesus just goes on to mention. I think they belong with the parable. Um, firstly, he talks about letting your light shine. Look at verse 16. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken from them. A second mark of fruitfulness is you let your light shine. You want people to know that you're a follower of Jesus. You make the gospel known. You verbalize your faith. You live it out. And then the third thing um, that I think is hinted at here, verses 19 and 21. You put yourself under 
the authority of the word. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. You see, I'm of the view that true Christian spirituality is a spirituality of the word. We hear, we hear it, and we put it into practice. That's what Jesus calls us to do. That's authentic uh, Christian living. So what's the fruit then? Persevering, proclaiming, and submitting to the word. And that, my friends, is how the kingdom of God comes. When God's word takes root in our hearts and our lives, when we live it out and when we share it with others, that is the kingdom being built. The word is living and active. It's the sword of the spirit. We mustn't drive a wedge between word and spirit. As we get the word out, the spirit is at work too. So there we are, the parable of the seed uh, or the four soils. hope there's something uh, new for you to think about there. Uh, we're going to, I'll pray and then we'll, we'll sing again. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that it's living and active. Uh, thank you that the gospel is transformative and life-changing. Father, just help us to be clear about what the seed is and the kind of response that uh, you've called us to. Help us, we pray, to hear your words and live them out, regardless of the cost. For Jesus' glory. Amen.